You are listening to the sermon podcast of Connection Church, a gospel-centered community on a mission to make much of Jesus in Sioux Falls, South Dakota. For more information, visit SiouxFallsConnection.com. Thank you for listening. As is our custom, we've been walking through a book of the Bible. We are going to read the latter part of chapter 14 of the book of Judges and then the entirety of chapter 15. We're at this series of the, these judges, these leaders and deliverers that God has sent to his people to not necessarily like judge, uh, you know, kind of disputes between a group of people, but to deliver and mediate between God's people and surrounding idol worshiping enemies. And so the judges are these deliverers that God has sent to, to help and assist God's people as they are beginning to inhabit and settle in this promised land. Now, up here in the Bible, we're, we're, we're near the front of the Bible, right? Uh, Right after the Pentateuch, the first five books of the Bible, we find Joshua, in which the first generation of people set free in the Exodus, begin to inhabit this promised land. And then Judges, immediately following, is a story in which we find what happens when the faith and trust in a covenant and promise-keeping God is not passed on to people who live among idol worshipers. And so we begin to see here this downward spiral, as I've, I've tried to begin every single every single week this way so that you will not begin to to think wrongly about the point of the book of Judges, that that you won't miss the argument that's being made by the book of Judges. It's it's not a a story of moralism or good lessons that you can learn from people you should should or should not look up to, but instead, the very last verse of the very last chapter in the book of Judges, in those days there was no king in Israel, that will come a few books later in in, in 1 and 2 Samuel, and since there was no, in those days, there was no king in Israel, everyone did what was right in their own eyes. That's especially important for us because maybe you've come into this room, maybe, maybe you wouldn't call yourself a Christian, and I'm really glad you're here. And, and you might come into this room and think that, like, what an outdated and archaic thing to do, to open a, a book and read a story from, from hundreds, if not thousands of years ago. Why would we do such a thing? What does this book have to do with me and 2020? And I would, I would push on you, like, we currently live in, and, and you've probably been trained in an ethos, a way of being that says that real happiness, real contentment, real fulfillment, and real satisfaction can be found in the self. You need to find yourself, which, cheat code here, finding yourself is typically you actually found yourself and you're just running from what you found. But real contentment comes from you discover yourself and, and you think highly of yourself. And then this is the, the, uh, the ultimate achievement of satisfaction is to express yourself, to assert yourself. Not, not to, not to if, if, the, if it's coming from the inside, then, then you don't want to feel repression of the self. But if it's coming from the outside, you don't want to feel oppression of your true self. But what the book of Judges says is, that's a sure recipe to destroy yourself and everyone around you. And this downward spiral of the book of Judges is making an argument apart from God's king. That self-absorption will destroy you and everyone around you. Now we're in the 12th and final judge, deliverer, and, and the situation is as bad as it could possibly be. Things are getting as bad as they could possibly be, even to the point where Samson, he's our hero, right? He's he's the next leader and deliverer, and he is just as bad, if not worse, than the people he lives among. So I want to read you up to this point in chapter 14 and chapter 13. He's he's come about by miraculous birth, and 
And then in, in chapter 14, he, he takes a wife, he gets married, and, and takes a, one of the idol-worshiping Philistines for himself. And then kind of in the, in the really awful, conflict-laden and you know, tension-driven wedding, you know what that's like, a fight breaks out, he kills some people. So in verse 19, to settle the score and a bet that he made with some people at this wedding, beginning in verse 19, we'll set the stage for verse 1 of chapter 15. So beginning in verse 19 of chapter 14. And the Spirit of the Lord rushed upon him, that is Samson. And he that is Samson went down to Ashkelon and struck down 30 men of the town and took their spoil and gave the garments to those who had told, who, to those who had told the riddle. In hot anger, he went back to his father's house. And Samson's wife was given to his companion who had been his best man. After some days, at the time of wheat harvest, Samson went to visit his wife with a young goat. And he said, I will go in to my wife in the chamber. But her father would not allow him to go in. And her father said, I really thought that you utterly hated her, so I gave her to your companion. Is not her younger sister more beautiful than she? Please, take her instead. Samson said to them, this time, I shall be innocent in regard to the Philistines when I do them harm. So Samson went and caught 300 foxes and took torches. And he turned them tail to tail and put a torch between each pair of tails. And when he had set fire to the torches, he let the foxes go into the standing grain of the Philistines and set fire to the stacked grain and the standing grain as well as the olive orchards. Then the Philistines said, who has done this? And they said, Samson, the son-in-law of the Temnite, because he has taken his wife and given her to his companion. And the Philistines came up and burned her and her father with fire. And Samson said to them, If this is what you do, I swear I will be avenged on you. And after that, I will quit. And he struck them hip and thigh with a great blow. And he went down and stayed in the cleft of the rock at Etam. Then the Philistines came up and encamped in Judah and made a raid on Lehi. And the men of Judah said, Why have you come against us? And they said, We have come up to bind Samson, to do to him as he did to us. Then 3,000 men of Judah went down to the cleft of the rock of Edom and said to Samson, Do you not know that the Philistines are rulers over us? What then is this that you've done to us? And he said to them, As they did to me, so have I done to them. And they said to him, we have come down to bind you that we may give you into the hands of the Philistines. And Samson said to them, swear to me that you will not attack me yourselves. They said to him, no, we will only bind you and give you into their hands. We will surely not kill you. So they bound him with two new ropes and brought him up from the rock. When he came to Lehi, the Philistines came shouting to meet him. Then 
The Spirit of the Lord rushed upon him, and the ropes that were on his arms became as flax that has caught fire, and his bonds melted off with his hands. And he found a fresh jawbone of a donkey and put out his hand and took it, and with it he struck 1,000 men. And Samson said, with the jawbone of a donkey, heaps upon heaps. With the jawbone of a donkey have I struck down a thousand men. As soon as he had finished speaking, he threw away the jawbone out of his hand. And that place was called Ramoth-Lehi. And he was very thirsty. And he called upon the Lord and said, You have granted this great salvation by the hand of your servant and... Shall I now die of thirst and fall into the hands of the uncircumcised? And God split open the hollow place that is at Lehi, and water came out from it, and when he drank, his spirit returned. He revived. Therefore, the name of it is called An Hakore. It is at Lehi to this day, and he that is Samson judged Israel in the days of the Philistines 20 years. My prayer is that this becomes more than just ink on a page, but that it becomes the very word of God for the people of God. I want to walk you through this text and and in many ways pick up where I left off. The, The cycle of Sin and brokenness in the world is that awful things happen, and and the cycle in the book of Judges is fourfold, that that awful things happen as a result of people's rebellion, and then in their desperation, they cry out to God, and then God sends a deliverer and grants them rest, restores them. But what we find here in this story is that the people, beginning even in chapter 13, never cry out to God for help. And we get a picture of God's grace even to this chaos. God sends someone to save those who do not even want to be saved. They're comfortable not to be saved. They're comfortable at this point. They're no longer even at odds with the people who have oppressed them. And you caught that in the middle, didn't you? They said, Samson, why are you messing with the status quo? We're comfortable here. And I introduced this to you yesterday and or excuse me, last week, and I want to reintroduce it to you, one of the most powerful ways that, like the book of Judges tells us, that we do whatever is right in our own eyes is that we will do anything to fit in. For many of you, this is the driving force for everything you do. A deep fear of abandonment. A deep terror of rejection. In many ways, this is what drives most of your decisions. And what this particular episode in the story of the deliverer Samson suggests to us is that's one of the most powerful indicators that we are doing whatever is right in our own eyes. That we would rather fit in with people than experience communion with God our Creator. We would rather find comfort in anything else than God our Creator. But notice in this chapter, everyone shows their true colors. Everyone shows their true colors. You, you, you began to see that last week, right? Samson takes for himself a wife. 
And Samson takes a wife of the Philistines. So the, the people that, that were oppressing God's people, the Israelites, the Philistines oppressing the Israelites had created such a situation that the Israelites didn't even want to didn't even want to mess with it. They were comfortable with it. They were complacent. They, they didn't even want that to, to be a problem. And so the, we know we're in bad shape now because even the judge, the deliverer, is a person who's perfectly comfortable living amongst the idol worshipers. And so he, like Veruca Salt, right, from Willy Wonka and the Chocolate Factor, says, give me a Philistine woman, right? I want a golden goose now, daddy, right? That is literally what Samson does. I want a Philistine woman, right? And as if you can hear Wonka in the back, you know, like, you know, what's it cost, Wonka? It's not for sale. Who's to say, who, who says that's not for sale, right? I want a Philistine woman now. And he tells his father, go and get her for me. And we're meant to realize this, 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 is, this is bad. Like, this is awful. Even the person that's supposed to deliver us from the Philistines wants to marry into that clan. And so, in that wedding, conflict boils over. He loses a bet. You caught that? A, a riddle is solved because this woman betrays him. And at the end of that chapter, that woman, who's ironically called his wife, even though it's not, it becomes his friend's wife, or in this case, a Philistine best man's wife. And so he sets out on a rampage, kills 30 Philistines to pay for his bet. To where the chapter 15, we see again that language from last chapter of what, what's known and what's not known, what's hidden and secret and what's revealed. What's, what's hidden at this point now is that he doesn't even realize that his wife's been given away. And you, did you catch the time of year that we're in now? We're, we're in the, the season of ripened, ripened harvest, right? And so evidently, like, wedding season is past, and some time has passed since the, the wedding and the fight and killing and all that stuff. And he's like, you know what? I'm going to go back to this woman. And, and I, I want to just stop for a moment and, and zoom out. And I, I want to make sure you see this, because it's especially important for some of you, like, really fuddy-dud kinds of people you're supposed to see the humor in this story. You're meant to laugh. You are invited to laugh at God's enemies. Now, we saw this before, right? When Ehud, the left-handed uh, trickster, right, stabs the fairly obese man, right? right? And, and some things happen that are really weird, and, and, and you're like, right? It's, and, and what happens? This is what God, God takes the enemies of his people and makes them a punchline of a joke. And so that's what we're meant to do here. As, as this sets the stage, right, for the delivering king that is to come, that a couple books later, King David will come and finally deal the death blow to the Philistines. This is meant to invite us to laugh. God will make a joke of his enemies. Psalm chapter 2 says it this way, Why do the nations rage? And why do the peoples plot in vain? The kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against his anointed, saying, let us burst their bonds apart and cast away their cords from us. So, so the people of the earth, like the people with power, we regularly rebel against God. We conspire, in fact, to rebel against God. And verse 4 says what God does. He who sits in the heavens 
laughs. The Lord holds them in derision. So don't miss that. Like We laugh at things in a way that often like takes them lightly. God isn't conflicted about what is serious and what is humorous, right? God is not some like weird mix of grace and wrath. God is perfectly gracious and perfectly wrathful. He is perfectly merciful and perfectly just. And so he is perfectly righteous and holy, and yet, as we see here, perfectly funny. And when people plot against the will of God, the purpose of God, catch what God does here. He laughs. Not that it's a small matter. Certainly their sin brings on their wrath. Even the next few verses of Psalm 2 tells us this. But we're meant for just a moment to be invited to see what it might be like to look at the enemies, the oppressors over our lives, and because of the grace of God, by His grace alone, we might laugh. Laugh, mock. Derision is the word Psalm 2 uses. 1 Corinthians 15 says that for the Christians, now we say that what, you know, death and, 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 and hell and the grave, and, and, we, and we, we go, what? And, and there's a quote from all the way back from Hosea, right? Oh, death, where is your victory? Death, where is your sting? Do you hear the, the language of derision? Because of the victory of Christ's resurrection, we can look at the purpose of the enemy to destroy us and do what? Ha <laughs> ha! Where is your sting? Where is your victory? What do you got for me? Thanks be to God that he gives us the victory in Jesus Christ. So don't miss this, especially for some of you who are, who are really stuck in the mud. Man, this is an invitation, a humor, to laugh at God's enemies. That's what this story is. It's kind of ridiculous. Verse 1, after those days, the time of the wheat harvest, Samson went to visit his wife with a young goat. Remember I told you, like up to this point, you've had lots of really wise counsel for parenting, and then Samson gives us a lot of wise counsel for relationships, whether it's dating or marriage. He gives us a lot of uh, things that you might do, but mostly what you really shouldn't do. But here's the one too, the way to a woman's heart, a young goat. Maybe it's a bouquet of flowers for you, but evidently he's like, I know I killed 30 dudes, but as soon as she sees this young goat, she's totally going to forgive me. Right? And then he said, and this is where it gets, the euphemism gets thick, I will go into my wife in the chamber. Now this exact same phrase is used in the book of Ruth, and it's a euphemism for a sexual encounter. I want you to remember that because the very first word, remember last chapter, out of Samson's mouth was what? The word woman. Woman I saw, bring her to me. Right? And what we find, especially next chapter, is while he thinks he's a conqueror, like, while he thinks the conquest of, of women is something he can pat himself on the back for, it, it turns out that it actually owns and conquers him. And so just look at this guy. What The father even points out, I, I thought you hated her. You can skip back to verse 18 of the previous chapter, and when she betrayed him. He, he said, well, if you had not plowed with my heifer, that's, again, that, that's, you're not supposed to, don't, do, don't talk about people that way, right? And so he's like, I thought you hated her. You said all these things about her, accused her of, of this kind of impropriety, and then, and then you flipped out and went and killed 30 people to, to pay for a bet you lost. 
makes sense. A good father, even a Philistine, would be like, yeah, honey, I don't think you should marry this one. It's comical. And there's a sense in which, like, what you'll see for the rest of the book, remember, I, I shared this with you, you want to pay close attention to the status of women in the book of Judges. Now, I'm unashamed about this, but when people do whatever's right in their own eyes, when they lose all sense of godliness and order and justice, the people who pay for it the most are women and children. And so we're meant to pay very close attention to how the women are spoken of, how the women are treated and talked about. It, it gets worse. And so you begin to see how bad it is, right? What does the father say? You know what? I mean, just listen, imagine a father saying this, right? You know what? I've got this other daughter. She is way more attractive than that one. How about I give her to you? I mean, how many layers of, of awful are there in there, right? That he would think of his daughters that way, but then, then to like, as a bargaining chip. There's more of this in the chapters to come. And what does Samson do? Samson says, all right, fine. He's furious, right? Because no one tells Samson who to marry, right? No one's going to tell Samson what girl, what girl he's going to get, right? Like, I want a golden goose now. I mean, you, you hear it? Like, no, I, want it, I will have it now. And then, and we find here that he flips out. This time, he says, I will be innocent in regard to the Philistines when I do them harm. Did you catch it? Did you hear the hints of a human being's capacity for self-justification? We have an immense capacity when we see things through our own eyes to justify anything. And you know this. You know this, even in the last week, month, or years, you've done things that you, yourself 10 years ago would have never thought you were capable of doing, but, but you have a good reason for doing it. You had a re this is why I did it. But don't miss that. Even the judge now is doing what's right in his own eyes. He's justifying himself. He's no longer looking in humility for God to grant grace. Instead, he's like, I'm justified. So Samson went and caught 30 foxes and took torches, all right? All right. Dad joke fans, this is your chapter, man. This is, so, and I, in the Hebrew here, the, the, the imagery, both when we talk about foxes and when we talk about donkeys, is meant to be a pun. You can't see it here, but, but the, basically the, the Hebrew word for a fox was a fire tail, right? Even like the word now, the, the, word, the word in Mandarin for a, a red panda is a fire fox, Right? And so he's like, I'm going to take a bunch of fire tails and I'm going to fire up their tail, right? Like this is, again, dad joke. First of all, dad jokers, there is higher humor out there, okay? And between you and me, you know that dad jokes have nothing to do with making people laugh. They have only to do with you laughing, okay? We, we see right through you. But there's two of them, right? I'll get to the next one. He even sings a song about one of them, like a dad would do. And then, so he says, like, all right, I'm going to take 300 fire tails, and I'm going to tie torches to their tails. And he takes two of them. Now, again, we're meant to begin to, like, our imagination is meant to be stretched here. Like, how do you catch 300 foxes? Or in this case, it could be jackals. Um, but, but it's like, how do you catch that many foxes? How do you do that? And, and all I would say is, on, on a, another little bit of wisdom here, don't prank people. Pranking always ends in vandalism, 
You prank someone and they're like, oh yeah, I'll get a little, I'll get a little, I'll get a little more. And then at a certain point, you're like, what do I do to get them back? And the answer, you become Samson. How much time and energy, how much time and energy did you put into catching 300 foxes? Right? Like, like, I mean, can you picture that person trying to reveal, like just muttering under, right? And then he lets them loose during harvest season. For the Philistines, who their livelihood would have been on the fruitfulness of the wheat harvest, he lets them loose, not only into the open fields, but also into the places that they had been storing grain. And we need to see something profound here, that the first thing that God does to deliver his people is to create conflict with their idols with which they've grown comfortable and apathetic. These people have no desire to be set free from the Philistines. Remember, Samson wants to be like them. And God in his mercy, as we saw last chapter, verse 4, is that God evidently is working through even the corrupt motives and even the awful sinful things that the people in this story do does not thwart God's good purposes for them. And one of the first things that Samson does, even though, right, he's just as bad as the Philistines, right? That we'll just do whatever, do whatever, right? I'll do it, fine, we'll do revenge and justify myself. And the Lord, in some mysterious way, uses Samson to pick a fight with the idol worshipers that were oppressing God's people. Think of it this way. God loves his people too much to allow them to remain comfortable with false hopes. We say this often, that we believe God loves you right where you are, but he loves you way too much to leave you there. And anybody who says, oh, no, I love you just like you are, never change, isn't demonstrating any love, but they're pulling up a front row seat to watch you destroy yourself. True love, we find here, is that God allows Samson to pick a fight, even unwittingly, even with awful, selfish, like impetuous kinds of motives. The Philistines in verse 6 they, who's done this? And they say, well, Samson. And then, again, there's the irony, right? He's the son-in-law of the Timnite. And it's like, well, they might have just been mocking him because not really, like, right? She, she wasn't his wife and she was given away to do his Philistine best man. But then they note, because he did this because, because he, that is the father, has, has taken his wife and given her to his companion, which would make anyone angry, especially after Samson. And the Philistines came up and burned her, and then burned her family. It's really easy to believe that true contentment can come from discovering yourself, finding yourself, and expressing yourself. But don't miss the argument the Bible makes very clear. That will destroy the people around you that you love. If you're in this room and maybe you're not a believer, you wouldn't call yourself a Christian, I want to invite you to, to consider this. Is it, is it possible that your current restlessness, 
Is it possible that your current despair and frustration, maybe with me or with anyone else around you or with the way things have gone, is because you have set yourself as king and ruler over everyone? Is it possible some of the deepest pain in your life is because you worshipped and loved yourself and used others to get what you wanted? You can drown those sorrows in whatever you like. But when you come to, you'll have to face the carnage. You'll see the bodies piling up of people that you used to get what you want. The Philistines killed this woman. Why? Right? Killed her family. Verse 7, and Samson said to them, if this is what you do, I swear I'll be avenged on you. Right, like he hadn't already done that. And, and after that, though, love this, I, I'll quit. I, this, is, this is the last bit, right? This is what, this, because that's what vengeance feels like, right? In the moment, in your own eyes, ah, I promise I won't overreach. Well, and he struck them. And then we get a euphemism, hip and thigh, literally. Like maybe your translation says they struck him brutally. But it's, it's we don't know if it's kind of like a wrestling move, but it's like he... He did some stuff. He did something with a great blow, and it was apparently so bad, he's like went to the, he like ran to, the, to a cleft of a rock in some cave and kind of hang out. And we don't even know, like, at the end of the story, we find out, like, how immense it was, but think about it. Between, between setting a bunch of stuff on fire with 300 foxes and between killing a thousand men with a strange utensil, apparently he did something that we can't even mention. Or just think, think about the category, right? Like, like, oh, he did awful things. Yeah, but ooh, we, 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 don't, we don't even talk about what he did, apparently, in verse 8. So in verse 9, Then the Philistines came up and encamped in Judah and made a raid on Lehi. And the central focus of the story like, comes into view here. And the, and the movement of the, of the plot through revenge and then reaction and reaction and reaction comes into view. The Philistines come up and they go against Judah, right? This is God's people that, that Samson is supposed to be delivering. And they make a raid against them. And the men of Judah in verse 10 said, why have you come up against us? Like, what, what did we do to you? Right? So you can already hear, like, hear their comfort and their enmeshment in the surrounding culture. Hey, whoa, we're friends. Why are you mad at us? We're one of you. We don't want to fight. We don't want any conflict. Why have you come up against us? They said, we have come up to bind Samson to do to him as he did to us. Now again, you hear the ethos, right? You hear the, the language of vengeance? It's, and it's strangely, it, does, it makes sense coming from the Philistines, but from, but from the people of God, Samson, the leader, God's chosen, he says the same thing. And then 3,000 men of Judah went down to the cleft of the rock of Edom and said to Samson, do you not know that the Philistines are rulers over us? What then is this that you've done to us? Now remember, this is pointing to something. This is whetting your appetite for something later in the Bible. But it's something profound, at least we see here. Samson is a man with a higher calling than any other deliverer in the book. But he spends his whole life doing his own thing. And even though he has this high calling, we find something profound taking place. He just follows his own lusts and desires. Give me that woman. Give me revenge. His lust and his fury control him. This is a word we talk about in gospel community regularly, but 
there's a word we use, it's called pathetic. Now, we use it badly, right? We just don't like a thing. We're like, that's pathetic, right? But literally, pathos, a Greek word means suffering, or we translate it as emotion, such that, right, pathos is, is translated passion or passio in the Latin, right? So that you know you've seen that the passion of the Christ is what? The, the suffering, the, the anguish of Christ. But to be pathetic, most literally, is to be driven or owned by emotion. You don't have self-control, but instead, this, the minute the emotion comes over you, it drives you. And now, and here's the thing, you, you, can, always, you can always identify the person someone else's, like, the, the ways they're pathetic. You can always say, well, oh, they're so emotional, but you rarely see your own, right? Like, you, like this is always the, you know, hey, she's so emotional. Yeah, you're the one who threw the remote at the TV, man. Like, my wife's so emotional. No, she's just, she, she feels sadness more than you, but you don't know what to do with sadness, and so that's why you scream when your team scores a touchdown, right? Like, but, right, so we, we regularly misunderstand the emotions of others, we regularly see the ways someone else is driven by emotion. But the story is meant to invite you to think like, hey, if God's person set aside with a purpose lacks such self-control and his emotion drives him to sin and rebel against God and destroy others, what are the ways in which this text is a mirror to invite you to reflect on the ways in which your own emotions point to some deep, deep fear or insecurity? I mean, for Baruch assault here, he didn't get his way. And so he lashed out, used people to make him feel better, and if they didn't, he killed them. And so you're meant to see these emotions driving Samson. But you also see something profound here about the way that God's people relate to Samson. You can tell things are as bad as they possibly could be because in verse 11, there's 3,000 men come down to Judah. 3,000 to get one guy. So they re, whatever, this is important. Whatever, whatever they want with Samson, it's important. We're, we're going to bring all of our guys. But just notice the math. They go to get Samson and then hand him over to 1,000 Philistines. So think about how the narrative should go. They go to Samson Samson says, you brought 3,000. There's only 1,000 down the hill. Let me lead you into battle to destroy God's enemies, right? We can do this, guys. I mean, I just find me a dead animal somewhere. Like, just jump in behind me, right? Like, but that isn't what happened, is it? And the first thing they confront him with is the ways in which he is upsetting them. Look, instead of joining God's deliverer to fight the enemy, they bargain with the enemy using the life of God's deliverer. Two ways you know they've given themselves over completely. They're completely enmeshed in the culture of the Philistines and the idol worshiping of the Philistines. You see, the, the people of Judah are now dutiful subordinates to their oppressors. And here's what I want to introduce you to. We are too. It's not that some of the things that are causing destruction in your life are annoying or frustrating. It's that they own you. They own you. 
And just like the story, most of us around you, we can see it. You have some people in your life that love you enough to help you see this. But look what the result is. Judah's determined to avoid confrontation with the Philistines at all cost. They're going to sell out their own guy. They're going to hand over their own man. And the people of Judah, instead of joining with God's man to fight the enemy, they join with the enemy to betray God's leader. There's two things you see in two consecutive questions. Did you catch it? First one is this. The Israelites can't handle the status quo being disrupted. Catch the first question. Don't you know that the Philistines are rulers over us? Don't you know? You see how they're dutifully subordinate now to the Philistines? And their objection isn't that the Philistines are good or bad or that Samson is good or bad or that God's purpose is good or bad. It's just like, hey, don't you know the way things are? Don't you know how things work around here? And they are dutifully subordinate. What do you see about the Israelites? They can't handle the status quo being disrupted. Being disrupted. Don't you know they own us? Can you hear that? Hey, I think that might be sin. I think that thing in your life might be rebel, rebelling against God purpose, God's good purpose for you. It might be destroying yourself and the people around you. And, and you might just respond by saying something like, well, well, nobody's perfect. You hear it? Don't you know sin owns me? Don't you know that's just the way it is? I mean, for some of you, just being here, right? Don't you know Christianity is in decline? Don't you know this is foolishness? It's especially important for what I think our, our, apparently our, our church is called to be and a witness to a group of people in our city. Don't you know millennials are the worst? That's just the way it is. Haven't you just come to expect that? Don't you know that's just the way things go? Don't you know that's the way people are? And the enemy has convinced these people. Don't you know that's the way it's always going to be? The second thing you see here in the second question is not only can they not stand the status quo being disrupted, but they can't even see beyond themselves. Do you see how personally they take it? Right? Don't you know that the Philistines are over us in the second question? What then is this that you have done to us? Right? All about me, right? Why have you done this to us? It's all about them. They hate that Samson has come to disrupt their relationship with idols. And so will you. So will you. We will fight to defend our idolatry, and we will take it personal when those idols are threatened. And because it's an idol, something you worship, you will sacrifice anything and anyone on its altar. But don't miss this. The, the act of God's mercy to set these people loose from the oppressors is first to pick a fight with them, to bring about conflict between them and, and the ways in which they have just become completely enmeshed into the surrounding culture. They don't want anyone to upset their idol of comfort, acceptance, 
They want to blend in at all costs. And God sends Samson, strangely and mercifully, to expose that and to disrupt it. Stop for just a moment. Take stock of this. Ask yourself, who are the people in your life that are comfortable with your idolatry? Who are the people you surround yourself with because you know they would never challenge your false hopes? Birds of a feather flock together. You won't have to look far. Who are the people you've surrounded yourself with because you know they worship the same idol as you? Is it possible they are not being friendly or loving? And ask yourself the converse question. Who are the people that are around you that don't want you to live in comfort with your sin and idolatry? Let me word it this way. Who are the people around you that love you enough to not let you become comfortable with a thing that will certainly wreck your soul? Who are those people? I mean, think of it like, who, you can ask yourself multiple different, who are the Samsons in your life, right? You can think about that in an unsanctified way. That's probably helpful, right? Like, who are the people that are fly off the handle and use you, right? That's okay. But who are the people that, even though they're kind of a mess, God in his mercy has put around you to make you uncomfortable with the false hopes you're currently resting in. I'm, and you're like, well, their life's a wreck too. Yeah, so is Samson. And yet that's evidently God uses hot messes because that's all there are. God uses wrecks. This, I mean, it's like, this, is a, this, is a, this is a train wreck. And this is what God uses to save his people. Hang on for a minute. Is it possible that you might have kicked all the people out of your life that were sent by God to loosen your grip on the idols that are costing you your soul? Because we will fight and defend our idolatry. We will fight. We'll get 3,000-man army, right? Don't. No. Stop it. We're all here to make you stop making us feel uncomfortable. And then we'll take it personal. I don't know about you, but I, I fight to defend the status quo of my idolatry. I'll fight like you wouldn't believe. I'll fight dirty. But I can tell you, even as I look around this room, the people in my life that are the most dear to me are the people who love me enough to warn me and say, hey, is it, hey, is it possible you're, you're siding with the... You, you sure do look like the world in this one. And then, there's no need to even, I don't even know how to elaborate on this one. <laughs> All right, we're going to take him down there. They bind him, right, and deliver him, turn him over to the enemy. And then the Spirit of the Lord rushes on him. The ropes melt off, right? You're meant to be like, like it, it, it's, not, it's like he's not even trying. The Spirit of the Lord empowers him, and he just breaks free. And Now, you're meant to see the irony again, right? One of the Nazarite vows was to stay away from dead things, corpses. And, we're, and, it's, and you're like, well, maybe the donkey was dead for a long time, and so it was deteriorated. Nope. And he found a what? A fresh one. He found a fresh one. 
And so we're meant to see something strange here, even though he had made a vow, and, and he has, he's wearing the hair that shows that he has made a vow to live a certain way, and he just, oh, well, and then takes the jawbone of a donkey, and then slashes, stabs, I don't know, a thousand men. Now hang on a minute, remember like the Gideon story? When, when God sifted through the people, some drank one way and some drank another, and a lot of you go to great lengths to go, well, I'm one of these, I'm one of... No, 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 that's not the point. The point here is not like, how did he do it? The point is, it's impossible had the Spirit of God not empowered him to do it, right? So, so beware, I know, like, I had warned some people even yesterday, you're going to be like, I'm, I'm just like this judge. You're, you're, you're welcome to identify with the sin and selfishness of the judges. You are never welcome to identify with the virtues of the judges. They're pointing to Jesus, okay? You don't get to like, I'm just, I mean, if that's your, if that's your jam, sure, hey, I'm sure like Jesus in this way, right? Okay, beware. We're not meant to identify with the hero, just like David and Goliath, right? Like, we're not to identify with David. I, I can... No, you're, you're the scared Israelites. You're the culturally enmeshed, idolatrous Israelites. And God in His mercy has sent a miracle to destroy the enemy. So don't spend any time trying to figure out how your favorite superhero looks like Samson and he kills all these people. It won't help you. We're meant to see at the very beginning, how did he do it? It was the Spirit of the Lord that rushed on him. And that's how we find victory as well. And then, okay, dad jokers, here we go. Samson said, with a jawbone of a donkey, heaps upon heaps. Now, the word donkey and the word heap are spelled the exact same way. So in that sense, it's like a pun, right? Like the word bear and bear. Like it's like, oh, which, which one? You know what I mean? You're like, which one is which? He says, like, with a, I, I, can't even, I can't even come up with this, run with, run with this, dad jokers, right? But, but like, it's uh, one commentarian said, like, with a jawbone of an ass, I piled up the enemy in a mass, right? Like, you're meant to laugh. You're meant to, I know some of you are like, Rrr. no, like this, that's, that's ridiculous. That's, and Samson is like, ha-ha, right? And he does what every good dad does. He makes it into... An embarrassing song. And then he even names the place that. Like Donkey Hill, right? Like Jawbone Hill. But notice something. Samson claims all the credit for himself. Did you catch that? With the, do- with the jawbone of a donkey. The jawbone of a donkey repeats it again. Have I struck down a thousand men? And you know what happens when you Try to take credit or carry the weight of the world on your shoulders. Did you catch in verse 18? He was exhausted. He was very thirsty. He called upon, and this is interesting, get a glimpse here. He called upon the Lord and said, now this is weird. You have granted this great salvation by the hand of your servant. So even though he sang a song, I did this. He's like, okay, I'm thirsty now. Well, you did this. But then he, he whines, doesn't he? Like, and shall you now like basically abandon me to die of thirst and, and then die with the uncircumcised? Now remember, a chapter before, he was like, I want a Philistine woman, right? And now he's like, oh no, you're going to let me die with the Philistine. Right? He, this is exactly, the whole thing started with this. But look, his prayer is as narcissistic as his manner of life, and it reveals his self-centeredness. Sometimes our prayers do too. Sometimes what we pray for 
reveals what we really love and what we really worship. But this is scary for us, especially if you're in this room and you would call yourself a Christian. He uses religious language that he denied in his lifestyle to get God to do something. He used religious language to make it look like he wasn't actually telling God what to do. I mean, ask yourself, who was really in control in that situation? Who had power? Who was the master? Who was the servant? How did that language play out? And something amazing happened. His, he's ruthless and he's self-centered. And nevertheless, God continues to work. <laughs> look, the tools available to God may be crude and imperfect, but he will deliver his people. This is what God will do. It will look like a mess. And yet God in his sovereignty will work these things together for good. And what the enemy meant for evil, the Lord means for good and for the saving of many lives. And look what God does. This is, I mean, this is, uh, what? And God splits open the hollow place that is at Lehi. We're meant to have this, this picture of Moses bursting forth a rock, even in anger, though, to, to deliver and sustain his people. And it's like he sees himself as a Moses, but he drinks and his spirits return and he's revived. As impetuous and childish as he is, God revives him. And he even names the place after that, like the, the calling fountain. And the idiot judged Israel and started the war that Eventually, King David would come along and finish such that we see this and say, in the end, look what happens. God saves an unfaithful, idolatrous, and complacent people, and he saves a self-absorbed, dying wretch. That's what God does. That's what God is like. Comes to a people who are utterly comfortable with the way things are. They've utterly turned against God and His good purposes for their joy, and what He saves them anyway. And He comes to a, a, a narcissistic child who, who cries and whines, and, and that's exactly who God saves self absorbed wretches. And here's the thing that will blow your mind God delights to do it. It's not an accident. We come to find out this is exactly what God meant to do, to save his people in this way. Friend, don't miss. This is pointing to something. This is meant to stir our imagination. I know for some of you, one of the most important things you hear is like, maybe you'll just see how exhausted Samson is trying to be the hero. I know for many of you, it may not be that you're like lazy or unmotivated or apathetic. Some of you are, but for many of you, you're just, you've been trying to be the hero in survival mode, and now you're just wiped out. Sometimes it's hard to tell the difference. But look what he does. In his exhaustion, what does he do? He cries out to God. Maybe you're exhausted from trying to be the hero. Did you catch the good news in this one? God revives Look to him. Call to him. We deserve no consideration from God. And yet his grace is extended to us in Christ. That while we were the idolaters, while we were the enemy, Christ came to restore us. Cry out to God. Because this is pointing to something, friends. This is pointing to something powerful. 
Cry out in exhaustion to God. He'll sustain you. Because you see here, Samson cried to get what he wanted. And Jesus laid down his life to grant us what we wanted, our deepest desires. Samson's wrath costs his wife's life. Jesus took the wrath of God over sin and laid down his life for his bride. The Israelites go and they get a hero and they bargain for freedom with his life. Friend, good news, Jesus was handed over and bought the price of our peace. They put on Samson the weight of a Savior, but God put the weight of sin on Jesus. They bound and betrayed their Savior and He burst the bonds to defeat the enemy. We bound and betrayed our Savior. Do you get, you get where we're going? Do you get the, like, are you getting to where you could finish the end of the sin? Are you getting it? Do you realize what this is pointing to? We have bound and betrayed our Savior, yet He has burst the bonds and defeated sin, death, hell, and the grave. He has defeated the enemy. You see where this is going? Friend, call upon the name of the Lord. He will deliver. He will save. God saves the wretch in need. That's what he delights to do. This is normally where I say, let's pray. But I want to stop for a moment because I haven't said this in a while. One of the hardest parts of my job is that I can point you to Jesus all I want. Very loudly, right? Very animatedly. Right? But all I can do is tell you about him. I can't make you run to him. And so, as we close, one of the things that I, I say, let's pray, but I want you to realize what, what, why we do that, why that's important. I just expounded about who, you know, who God is and how he reveals himself in Scripture. But when I say, let's pray, I'm no longer saying, like, let's talk about him. I'm saying, talk to him. Run to him. It would be a terrible waste of your time to hear a lot about God, but in this place, forget to meet him. And friend, I have good news. He's waiting. If you get a great sermon today, but you don't get him, you got ripped off. If there's sin, tell him. He won't be shocked. He has grace waiting. If you're exhausted, tell him. He won't be shocked. He has grace waiting. Maybe if you've never talked to him before, tell him that. He won't be shocked. He has grace waiting. Maybe you haven't talked with him in a long time. You've been avoiding him. Tell him. He has grace waiting. And a profound mystery will overtake our time together. He will redeem wretches. and He will save people that don't deserve it. He will hear you and meet with you. So let's go to him in prayer. God, thank you so much for Samson. I thank you for all of the ways that he is a mirror to my own narcissism. I thank you for the ways he, he forces me to see my own childishness and immaturity. I thank you especially maybe for some in the room that that wouldn't call themselves Christians, that maybe he serves as a mirror to show us what happens when we look to ourselves for satisfaction. 
We try to justify our own actions by ourselves. Might he serve as a powerful example of what happens to a person and the people around them when they love themselves more than anything? Might we even this morning turn from that? Begin to consider the possibility that that's not how we were meant to live. Maybe for some of us, we have heard this good news that you deliver wretched people, but we forget. We trust in other things. We try to be the hero ourselves. Might you, in these moments, revive us and remind us that you satisfy? Might we look to you? Might we no longer be satisfied hearing about you? Might we only find satisfaction, quenching of our thirst by going to you? Thank you that you're waiting and ready to redeem people like us in Jesus' name. Amen.